Welcome to the Draft Deeper Podcast. This is your host, Nathan Grubel. Joining me, as always, is my producer, Kevin Black. We keep rolling on in our redraft, not redraft, but revisiting old draft classes. I've been grading these draft classes out using the tier system that I use for the 2021 NBA draft class. We hit on 2020, so one year ago in our last podcast. Now we're going back two years. We're we're hitting 2019 in this, and then I will still have 2018 and 2017 coming. Hopefully we'll get both of those out next week, and then we're pretty much right on the doorstep of getting all of the prep started for the 2022 NBA draft. So plenty of content coming regarding 2022, but I wanted to finish this stuff out and then hopefully get some NBA preview content in, and then we will be jumping into 2022. So without further ado, I want to hop into 2019. So I'll lay the ground rules out, same as we've been doing. I'm grading essentially tiers one through seven, technically. I'm mainly focusing in on tiers one through four when we're doing this exercise because those are players that I see as either being guaranteed starters at some point in their careers on a really good championship level team or kind of like your sixth man, your spot starter, your specialist, you're your like the fifth guy in the starting lineup. He's not good enough to be like a first or fourth option. He's the fifth guy there. Either way, those are the caliber of players that obviously everyone's interested hearing about the most, seeing exactly where my tiers line up with where these guys were originally drafted, where I might have projected them, seeing who might have jumped up. And this draft class in particular is really interesting because while I don't have anybody jumping up incredibly so into like a tier one or a tier two, for example, I have five guys who were drafted in the top 60 who I actually have moved up into a tier three and I even have an undrafted player move up into a tier three. And and that's kind of a jump because when you do this sort of exercise, the casual observer or, or fan of the draft would expect to see the lottery guys really holding down their positions maintaining their status quo, finding roles within the NBA, getting better, especially after two years now, and hopefully living up to a lot of the promise that they had coming into the draft. That really doesn't happen a ton. And this draft class in particular, I was already already going through some notes on 2018 and 2017, trying to prepare for those podcasts. But this, this in particular is really what you would expect to see, right? So I've been talking about the whole reason why I wanted to do this exercise was 2021 and 2020 were very, very loaded draft classes, not necessarily all at the top in terms of star talent, but also incredibly deep, bleeding through the first round, even going into the second round with role player type of talent, guys who could maybe be starters one day in their careers, guys who you would expect to make meaningful contributions in a sixth man or a bench role, maybe being like a seventh or a ninth man for an NBA team. You don't always see that, but this draft class speaks to more of that notion, right? You don't always see that level of depth in a draft. Going through tiers one through four in this draft class, as I've 
upgraded and reorganized these guys a little bit. I have 25 guys that I'm mainly going to be focusing in on. And then I will read through some names that I would have outgraded in a tier five. And maybe I'll even mention some guys in a tier six. But these so 25 guys that I'm projecting to either obviously be stars or starters right now. They can be a starter level player at some point in their careers, or they're going to be a very valuable like sixth man type, or they're like a specialist. 25 of those guys, that's actually still a really good number. Um, and, and 2019 was a memorable draft class, obviously at the very top. Um, but there is some depth. And like I mentioned, it's really interesting when you get to the back end of the first round even going through the second round and that one guy I mentioned who was an undrafted player who I've moved all the way up into a tier three because of his impact on the defensive end. I'm sure some people in the audience can guess who that guy is. It's just really interesting to see how this breaks down um, and, and the depth that was even in the 2019 class. But obviously we'll start at the top. So again, only one tier one player and some years like in the last podcast, 2020, I, I don't have anybody in that tier one, that MVP caliber tier. I have a few guys in a tier two from that draft class, Lamella Ball and Anthony Edwards that I went over, but nobody is a tier one. Tier one for me is an MVP caliber player, somebody who is not just a max player, but when you put somebody in that MVP level status, that is a, a legitimate, legitimate star talent for your team to build around and, and someone who can ideally be a first option on, on a championship level team, somebody who could potentially bring a title home despite the situation that he's in. And I do have Zion Williamson, obviously is the main guy in that tier 27 points per game last year, seven rebounds. He shot 61% from the field, 27 PER 64.9 true shooting percentage but really it's where you see his effectiveness on the offensive end he was in the 92nd percentile in terms of total offense 79th percentiles in isolation sets as the ball handler and pick and roll sets and that's really important to a point i'll make in a second the 95th percentile and 81st percentiles getting him off screens handoffs 78th percentile and cuts really anything you can think of to get Zion Williamson involved, get him moving downhill towards the basket. He's a freight train. Nobody's stopping him. It doesn't matter how you defend him. You can throw multiple guys at him. You can try and build a wall. Obviously, any kind of one-on-one -on -one single coverage, that's not going to work. It's really about doing your absolute best to try and keep him out of the paint. But if he gets downhill, gets enough momentum, his size, 6'6", six, six, so many different weights that you see on him as somewhere between 260 to 275 pounds, any way you put it, the dude's a damn house and you're not stopping him very easily. Most of the time you're not stopping him at all. That's why he's so effective. He takes almost all of his shots exclusively in the paint and yet nobody's figured out how to stop him for being effective shooting against 61% from the field and a 64.9% true shooting percentage no matter what the defense does they know what's coming everybody who plays against zion knows what's coming and now you add into the fact that he's gotten more comfortable and is certainly now handling the basketball 
making reads, acting out of pick and roll sets, not just being a pure downhill driver, but also setting up his teammates. The the phrase point Zion really took into shape last year. And I'm glad that he has the ball in his hands more, and he hopefully will be, especially heading into this year, because a lot more offensive responsibility deserves to be on his shoulders. He's not he's not the type of player who you only want traditionally posting up. You want to get him on the move. You want to put the ball in his hands. You want to make him create off the dribble. Because when he's doing that, when he's not just being stationary or, or posting up on the low block, when he's actually moving with or without the ball in his hands, because of the amount of gravity, the amount of attention that he commands, you're making the defense absolutely discombobulate, discombobulate in terms of how they're thinking about the game. You're completely throwing them off guard. They don't know how to respond to you because how can you stop him? All of the numbers say that you can't stop him. So you're literally making the defense think exclusively about him because of the attention he commands. And it opens up room for other guys to operate. It's why I believe in my opinion, it's why Brandon Ingram has played so well offensively since Zion's been in the building. Um, you, you'll see they brought over Devonte Graham this year, him being the prolific shooter from outside that he is at the guard position. I expect him to thrive off of some of the driving kicks that Zion's going to be able to force and and, and leverage. Um, Trey Murphy, somebody who was held of high regard in, in the draft community this coming year, now comes in a big 6'9 shooter, awesome spot up and catch and shoot guy. He's going to be able to take advantage of opportunities when they're given to him. Nikhil Alexander Walker gets to create off of Zion. If we do end up seeing any kind of breakout year from Nikhil Alexander-Walker, who is somebody who can technically be mentioned in this podcast. Again, Zion's presence only helps some of these guards who operate from the perimeter because of so much attention he draws. Once he sits one foot in the paint, immediately the defense has to collapse in response. So you would think that just adding another year of experience with Zion, that not only is he going to get better, but he's going to get more comfortable, more familiar with making the teammates around him better, especially if he's in this quote-unquote point-forward role, you would expect to see the New Orleans Pelicans take massive leaps this year on, on offense at the very least. But defensively, obviously, there's still a bunch of concerns. Although the one thing I do want to say, it's not like the New Orleans Pelicans have had this incredible defense the last few years that Zion's been with the team. So many people, and myself included at times, have thrown Zion under the bus a little bit because he hasn't given as much effort or he hasn't been as attentive on the defensive end as he's shown in, in other areas, not only in the NBA game, but even going back to playing defense in college at Duke. He was a ferocious playmaker on that end, both playing the passing lanes, although he, he gambled a little too much, and that was definitely one of the defensive concerns with him coming out of college. But he he generally gambled, and, and a lot of times he actually gambled correctly because he just has that much size to, to bounce himself off of somebody. And if he sees the play coming, he sees the pass coming in the passing lane, his speed at his size, his length, he's able to intercept that. And yeah, if you get Zion going in transition, good luck. But even, even his weak side rotations, his help from the weak side, protecting the rim, blocking shots, he had some absolutely standout blocks 
at Duke. And it was honestly breathtaking to see him swat the ball into the stands like a volleyball on, on some of the opportunities he got at Duke. So he was a special defensive playmaker in college. Obviously, going back to high school, he was he was so much bigger, stronger, faster than everybody else. Like that that wasn't necessarily much of a challenge for him acting more as a defensive playmaker. But he was in the 70th percentile in terms of total defense last year. He he excelled defending spot-up opportunities. Obviously, he's going to have success against any sort of roll man and pick and roll sets. He defended well around the basket. He was in the 79th percentile, closed out on jump shots, 75th percentile in, in catch-and-shoot opportunities. Really, what he needs to work on is not being so much of a liability when he's caught in space or he's on an island. He, he needs to be able to defend much more effectively in isolation sets. He was only in the 32nd percentile there. And when you kind of have him in this no man's area, like, like in the mid range, he needs to get better at sticking closer to his man, anticipating which way his matchup is going to go. That that's a little bit of just KYP, know your personnel. Which angles does that player like to take attacking on the offensive end? Do they like going right? Do they like going left? Definitely make sure that all of that's studied up on it. Just trying to best anticipate with your feet. He's not the quickest lateral mover, but he's not slow by, by any means. He is one of the best athletes we have in the NBA. So really figuring out how to play better defense in space, play better defense off the ball. Those are his next steps there. But I just wanted to point out some of those numbers because he's not the defensive liability that some people would lead you to believe that he's been. So Zion being the transcendent talent that he is on the offensive end of the defensive end, as long as everything works out for him and his team, he's able to elevate his teammates and they're able to win enough games. I fully expect him to win an MVP award one day, barring obviously any sort of injury concerns. I, I have no reason to believe that Zion with so much talent that he has, he's still literally only scratching the surface i mean the the scary thing is that he even looking at like his free throw numbers for example he took 8.7 free throw attempts per game last year he actually made he made six of them so he's at about 70 percent from the free throw line obviously a he can hit those free throws at a better clip as long as he keeps working on a shot from the free throw line but i think what the crazy thing about it is he can add more attempts to that because he's such a bulldozer getting downhill, if he takes more than 17 shot attempts per game, if he ups that to about 20 to 21, and then along with those 20 to 21, you're also adding an increase in trips to the line. He's drawn more fouls. You get those free throw attempts up to like 12 per game. I mean, I, I really see an easy path for him even this year to average 30 plus points per game. And there's a reason why when you lay out, when you lay out some of those paths for him to easily improve his scoring average, there's a reason why in Vegas the odds makers have him as one of the top favorites to be the leading scorer in the NBA altogether. There is a reason for that. He, The fact that he was already at 27 points per game last year, he can only keep getting better on his outside shot. He can add the three ball, maybe take two to three three-point attempts per game as long as the shot's there. Again, keep adding to the free throw attempts, the field goal attempts. There's an easy path for him to bump those scoring numbers up another, I don't know, six to seven points per game, which sounds crazy when we're talking about a player going into his third year averaging like 33 to 34 points per game. But Zion is not your typical third-year player. He's a franchise-changing talent. 
I, I expect nothing but big things from Zion in the future. Then we come to tier two. There's only one tier two player I have Martyr, and that's John Morant. Some people would argue with me that he could be in that tier one, that MVP caliber tier along with Zion. I I would disagree with that. I don't see I don't see John Morant being the type of player to come out and, and win an MVP award. And it's not it's not necessarily for a lack of aggressiveness. He took 15 shots per game last year. He averaged 19 points per game. He he's more of he's more of a traditional playmaker than you realize. He's he's not a score first point guard. He's not somebody who's going to put up like 28 points per game. He's not he's not going to be like Derrick Rose was when Derrick Rose won the MVP, right? John Moran is much more of your traditional playmaker. He does a really good job of mixing speeds, start, stop, playing out of pick and roll, looking for the open man, kicking the ball out to the corner, getting the ball where it needs to go, making those slick reads within pick and roll sets, the pocket passes. I've been on record, I believe on not just private conversations, but I believe on social media, I I think I've put this out there, that Dame Lillard right now and Chris Paul for for my money are the best pick and roll point guards in, in the NBA. And to an extent, I mean, you could put James Harden in that conversation. You can put Steph Curry in that conversation, but I think the fifth guy that belongs in that conversation, if we're talking about, in my opinion, more pure point guards, Luca can technically be in that conversation as well, but like Jaws, that other guy, Jaws, that one guy who's kind of on the outside looking in a little bit and if the jump shot comes along for him, then I actually think he he may very well be the best pick and roll point guard in the NBA at some point in his career. Again, it's going to be all about the the efficiency for him and just how poorly he's been shooting the basketball in different areas on the floor up to this point. That's really the biggest contributor to him only having a 53.7 true shooting percentage, him only being in the 29th percentile in terms of total offense last year. Again, it's not for a lack of aggression, but it's about a lack of efficiency. He's not the most skilled finisher around the basket. He was only in the 20th percentile finishing around the basket. Um, He did not have much of a a medium-range jump shot to hang his hat on. And then we know about the three-point shooting woes. He was only 30.3% from the three-point line last year on, on almost four attempts per game. So it's not like he's only taking one or two. He's in a much more healthier ballpark and that up closer to four attempts per game, especially given everything else he likes to do, putting downhill pressure on the defense, finding gaps, finding angles to attack the basket. That that jump shot, I mean, you you, you even saw it in the playoffs. Like when, when the Grizzlies were playing against the Jazz, they gave him such wide open space to take jump shots and he just could not make enough of them to keep the defense honest and make them come out to him a little bit more. And it took away some of his driving lanes. It took away some of his opportunities to attack at different angles, um, get downhill momentum, be able to change speeds off of that. And then it just gears back. It's, it's because he doesn't have the same type of jump shot threat as somebody like a, like a Trey young, for example, somebody who, I think Ja, in many different respects, changes speeds and is as coordinated of a ball handler as somebody like like a Trey Young. I think Trey's handles obviously a little bit better. He has he's he can go a little bit deeper in the bag in that regard. But just in terms of 
understanding where he is, where his teammates are around him, how he can get his teammates the ball operating from this spot on the floor, how he can get the different spots on the floor. I think him and Trey operate the games the same, but the difference is, is that both are quick players, but Trey is able to leverage his speed a lot more because of the threat of that jump shot that he can pull up from literally anywhere. He can pull up from outside the three-point line. He can easily pull up off of one or two dribbles from inside the arc. Um, he can go to the floater game like Ja, although his floater game is improving, Ja doesn't have all of those things, all of those shots in his bag. And that's why up to this point, he hasn't been as effective as I think he can be. Now, he had a lot of moments last year. He played very well against Golden State, even get Memphis into the playoffs out of the plan. He showed out in Memphis's first few games against Utah, really came out and, and shocked a lot of people. There are a lot of analysts who were on TV at the time saying that that was John Morant's coming out party. He has a lot of promise. He has a lot to prove. Nothing but respect for John Morant moving forward. I cannot wait to see what he is going to do this year and beyond as long as he, again, continues to keep working on that jump shot and, and makes his outside game much more of a threat to, to let him better get inside the arc, get a step on the defense, and then you really see the magic happen. We can go to work there. So tier three, tier three, again, for anybody who hasn't listened to the previous podcast or hasn't listened to any of my other tiers podcast before, tier three is I view them as a guaranteed one through four starter on a championship level team. Maybe not an MVP caliber player. Maybe not one of those guys who is a guaranteed building block for your defense, franchise player, max them out, whole nine yards. Don't even think twice about it. But these are guys who I think can play roles in starting lineups. A lot of these guys actually have played significant roles already at this point in, in their careers. And a few of them, I think their opportunities are, are coming sooner rather than later. Absolutely, for sure. So first guy I have, and again, the, these guys are not ranked within the tiers. I'm going on the order I have them in my spreadsheet. First guy I have on the list is RJ Barrett. He was the third pick in the draft. So up to this point, I think about up to pick five, we're going to go in order as far as where these guys are showing up as tiers. So you'd expect the first two picks technically to be in those top two tiers. You would expect the next, I don't know, four to five picks usually to end up in that tier three. So... We're on pace right here with R.J. Barrett. He was the third pick in the draft in the New York Knicks. 17.6 points per game last year. 5.8 rebounds, three assists. Shot 44% from the field. Biggest revelation for him last year. A bunch of people have talked about it. I know Coach Thorpe has brought it up in multiple different segments over at True Hoop when he was talking about R.J. Barrett's improvement from three-point range, particularly in the second half of last year. Shot 40% from three overall last year. About 75% from the free-throw line. That's fantastic. That's great. Him being a threat, not just attacking downhill, going to his left, but being a threat off the catch, being able to step into a three-point shot, being much more of a transition threat. If he doesn't have the ball in his hands, he's able to fill a lane out and transition, catch it, gun it up, get the easy three-point shot there. I would like to see that transition percentile come up a little bit. He was only in the 45th percentile scoring in transition last year. I want to see that 
come up a little bit more. I think it can be much more effective there. But again, the catch and shoot number was great. 77 percentile shot almost 41% on those catch and shoot looks. He's still not a great finisher around the basket. Similar with, with jaw. He doesn't always attack angles correctly. He's not the strongest of guards quite yet either to withstand a lot of contact, finish through a lot of contact. He was only in the 18th percentile last year, only shooting about 46.6% around the basket. And then he doesn't really have a reliable um, push shot. He's not great off the dribble. He was only in the 19th percentile shooting off the dribble last year. So those are some areas where he does really need to improve. He did improve in multiple aspects last year defensively as well. He was much much better around the basket defending, much better defending roll men and pick and roll sets. But he does need to certainly keep improving on the defensive end as well. The good news is, is Tom Thibodeau is his coach. So at the very least, if R.J. Barrett isn't giving effort on the defensive end, you know damn well that Tims will just pull him right out of the lineup and he'll send him down for a little bit and he'll talk to him. So I think that's a major reason why RJ, along with a few other people on the New York Knicks team, they definitely step up defensively. And that's what helped New York have such a, a, a stout defense last year. So multiple areas as I laid out for RJ Barrett to improve, but he's definitely proven himself at the very least as a starting caliber player in the NBA and somebody interesting for the Knicks, the, the Knicks to keep in tow for the next few years. Maybe if, some sort of trade comes along. Maybe if the Damian and Lillard trade rolls around and, and, and Lillard wants to go to New York, maybe the Knicks include RJ Barrett in a package with multiple other assets to send back to Portland. I think Portland would view Barrett as a pretty nice chip to get back in any sort of trade if they had to move him. So right there, RJ Barrett, starting caliber player. DeAndre Hunter, I've talked about him. He was the fourth pick in the draft, the Atlanta Hawks. I talked about him on Chad Ford's podcast about how impressed I was with him defensively. Even one of the last shows I put out, that combo show I did with the overstated NBA show about some of the top young cores in the NBA and why I view DeAndre Hunter in such a hot in such high regard. I don't have I don't have any bad markings for him defensively on my spreadsheet at all. Can I lay out a lot of different numbers, a lot of different categories when I do prep for these podcasts. And I will mark a I will mark a box in yellow if it's below a certain threshold in terms of percentile that it shouldn't be for for any player. There, there's a lot of leniency in these like average to, to to good categories on synergy, like when we're talking about like the 35th all the way up to like the 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 low 50s in terms of percentile. The majority of these players have a lot of their synergy percentiles fall within that range. But if you dip below a certain point, I'm going to mark you. If you're above a certain point, I'm also going to mark you and I'm going to give you a green mark and I'm going to essentially give you my version of a pat on the back. And I have no bad or yellow marks for DeAndre Hunter defensively on this sheet and a ton of green marks. And I've laid out what all those percentiles are on multiple different podcasts up to this point. But bottom line, what you need to know in case you haven't heard me already is DeAndre Hunter has no holes in his defensive game. He is one of the most unique defensive weapons that we've had come into the league in the last two to three years. I fully expect him to be a long-term member 
of the Atlanta Hawks because his offensive game has come around in multiple respects. He can still technically shoot the ball a little better from three-point range. He only shot it about close to 33% last year, but he did. He did shoot 86% from the free throw line. That's fantastic. 60.3 true shooting percentage where he's lacking in offensive touch in certain areas. He makes up for it in his ability to finish around the basket, play ball in transition, fill the lane correctly, beat the opposing defense back, get some easy buckets there. In half-court sets, you can have him operate off handoffs. You can run him off screens. Anything to kind of get him moving downhill as well, he can be effective. Started to put some of the mid-range game together last year when he was healthy. So fantastic two-way player for the Atlanta Hawks to have for their future. And DeAndre Hunter, I expect him to keep moving forward, taking steps there to definitely keep improving on his game. Then we move to the fifth pick in the draft. He He's a little lower on my spreadsheet here. I don't have him in the same exact order, but I'll just move right to him so that we can kind of knock out one through five here in terms of where they were selected. Darius Garland was the fifth pick in the draft for the Cleveland Cavaliers in 2019. I got to be honest. I went back and forth a little bit with Garland, whether I fully believed in him to be a full-fledged one through four guy in a starting lineup on a really good team, or do I feel like at some point in his career, sooner than him just being older and moving to the bench naturally. But maybe at some point in his career, he transitions to more of like a sixth man type role for for an NBA team. And you look at the raw numbers, and if you just look at the raw numbers, you tell me I'm crazy. He averaged 17 points last year, six assists, 45% from the field, 39.5% from three, almost 85% from the free throw line, even averaged over a steal per game. But when you dive into exactly where he's effective or how he's effective and where isn't he effective, he was in the 32nd percentile in terms of total offense, 30th percentile operating out of isolation sets, only, only the 32nd percentile scoring out of pick and roll sets. 48th percentile on spot up, 16th percentile off cuts. There's a bunch of areas that you can just tell that he's lacking in from an efficiency standpoint. Another one of these guards, not big in stature. He doesn't finish well around the basket, only in the 24th percentile finishing around the basket. Really, his biggest saving graces are his ability to find others passing out of those pick and roll sets and then his ability to act as a catch and shoot threat you cannot leave Darius Garland open for for one second if he doesn't have the ball in his hands you better have a body at least somewhat near him ready to close out and contest a shot from him because he is he is such a marksman from so many other areas on the floor that's what keeps him in this tier three for me those two things He can still continue to get better from a scoring perspective. He can take more three-pointers per game. He's he's one of those shooters. I do not mind if he takes like upwards of like six and a half to seven threes per game. If that's where the number ended up next year, I would have no fault with it. But he has to continue to provide enough offensive value 
to also make up for the fact that he is one of those smaller guards who's just not going to be good on defense. He was only in the 14th percentile in terms of total defense last year. A lot, a lot of yellow on his defensive numbers. He, his, his stats are like the inverse of what DeAndre Hunter's was on, on my sheet here. So can he keep providing enough offensive value to justify being played heavy minutes on the floor, knowing damn well that an opposing defense is going to continue attacking him? It's really like him and Trey Young are kind of in the same boat there. They, they don't have to be good defenders. They don't, have to, they don't have to be good or great defenders, but can they at least hold their own and not be complete negatives on that end of the floor? But I will keep Darius Garland in this Tier 3 here because only two years going on three years, it, it's a little too soon to make that kind of a judgment call for somebody who was picked with a fifth pick in the draft. I'll give Darius Garland the benefit of the doubt. So now we'll go back to going in order on my sheet here. Rui Hachimura, ninth overall pick in the draft to the Washington Wizards. Tier 3 guy, averaged almost 14 points per game last year, 5.5 rebounds, shot about 48% from the field. Pretty weird offensive split when you actually break his game down. Much, obviously very comfortable scoring in transition. He was in the 86th percentile scoring in transition last year, but he's also one of these, like, combo forwards who loves operating out of the mid-range he's not a great standstill shooter but if you let him go to something off of a pull-up like a one-two dribble pull-up he's much more comfortable going to like a fadeaway jumper out of the post one of those one-two dribble pull-ups in the mid-range he has a really sweet mid-range game he has an almost unblockable jump shot with his release point and the size and length that, that he already possesses. He's getting that ball up. Very few players are actually going to be able to properly contest and or block that shot. But because he doesn't have much of a standstill shot, because he still needs to iron some things out mechanically there, he was only in the 29th percentile last year shooting jump shots. He doesn't have any sort of like floater or runner game around the basket to speak of. Is only in the 13th percentile there. And again, that, this number also feeds into that narrative 29th percentile and catch and shoot looks shooting under 36 percent on those shots so i don't really know how Rui keeps expanding his offensive game other than just iron out a shot mechanically and learn how to be a much more effective shooter at the very least from the corners when the ball swung around to him and he has the open shot because i don't really see him being a player to warrant higher volume at other points in his career. I think that, you know, get, getting him about 11 to 12 shots per game, like that's probably on the higher end of what you want Rui Hachimura taking. He's a unique defensive weapon. He could, he can certainly guard three and four on the defensive end, might even be able to keep up with some shooting guards and, and some point guards for different spurts, but he's definitely like a three, four type defender. Again, solid length. Loves to get out and transition. Pretty, I'll, I'll, I'll say pretty decent rebounder for his position. He's not going to blow you away, but five and a half rebounds per game. That's not bad. He's certainly had some moments getting some, some relatively large offensive rebounds and, and being able to put those back in some times where, I, where I've cut up and, and watched some film of Rui. But I just don't see 
how he can take his game to another level. The, the, the guy that he is now is a starting caliber player in the NBA because of his versatility and his, and his utility at his size. But I don't see how he makes that other jump. Another guy in a similar position at, at the wing spot, Cam Johnson for the Phoenix Suns. What I will say, he was the 11th pick for the Suns. Everybody, myself included, had no idea what the Suns were doing with that pick. So many people thought that he was taken too high. He was taken out of position. And yet, lo and behold, especially in the playoffs last year, he was one of the most meaningful contributors to that Phoenix Suns team shooting the basketball. He was scorching hot in the playoffs, scorching hot in the conference finals, made his impact felt when he did get shot attempts in the finals. A more expanded role in terms of getting shots is definitely in his future. I mean, he shot the ball so well. I mean, Stephen A. Smith on first take was was literally calling for him. The national media literally calling for the Phoenix Suns to give the ball to Cam Johnson more. Why isn't he on the floor as much as he was? Why isn't he getting more shot attempts than like seven or eight per game? Why aren't they giving him 13, 14, 15 shots per game if he's going to be able to hit the three ball at such a clip that he's able to? I didn't really have a good explanation as to why. I absolutely agree with them. I thought that Cam Johnson should have been used a lot more within Phoenix's offense. They should have found ways to get him the ball more in the playoffs and, and, and not rely on some of the other tougher shots that they got when they went away from getting DeAndre in the ball and, and feeding him down low. But I would expect that Monty Williams and the coaching staff are, are reviewing the tape of last year they're they're going back and they're working on some things for this year and i would expect cam johnson to certainly have more than 8.1 shot attempts per game i would expect his shot attempts to go up to about 11 or 12 at least this year that means the three-point numbers are probably going up to about seven or eight attempts per game at least i fully expect those numbers to jump up and i expect cam johnson to be averaging somewhere in the 14 to 15 point per game ballpark as long as he's given the opportunity i know jay crowder is still on the team. So I don't know if Cam Johnson has a route right now to a starting spot. Maybe he is just a very timely bench contributor. But I think if it's not this coming year, at some point, this man's going to be a starter because he's just that prolific shooting the basketball. And he's not a great defender, but I would consider him a good defender for his size. Much better than I thought he was advertised coming out of college. I didn't think he had the quickest feet. I didn't think he moved that well laterally, but he competes. He uses his size to his advantage. Anytime he's matched up on um, not as big of a small forward and he's playing like a bigger, like a three or a four spot, like Cam Johnson can eat those guys up a little bit. I like what Cam Johnson brings to the table as a three and D guy. I have him in that tier three. I think that as his role expands, he's going to, further justify me having him in that tier three conversation. PJ Washington, Charlotte Hornets forward, 12th overall pick in the draft, 13 points per game, six and a half rebounds per game last year, 44% from the field, 38.6 from three, almost 75% from the free throw line. He's been better defensively, I think, than he has been offensively. And he's had his moments offensively as well. He's had some 20 plus point games. 20-plus point games in his career. He's shot the ball effectively from three-point range, as I outlined, at almost 39% from three. That's a magnificent number for a stretch forward in today's game. But some of his defensive numbers are pretty interesting. First of all, he's one of two guys 
on this list to actually average over a steal and a block per game. So that's pretty cool. But when you break down some of his defensive percentiles, he's in the 77th percentile last year defending um, ball handlers and pick and roll sets, 82nd percentile defending handoffs, was pretty decent around the basket, um, defending the roll man, defending against post-ups. So he certainly has a role within this Charlotte Hornets team for being better than I think given credit for on defense and being a versatile enough offensive threat, being a role man as he continues to expand his game playmaking out of the short role, continue to be more efficient, stretching the defense, expanding his range. PJ Washington's not going to blow you away statistically by any means, but he's one of those guys. He's tough minded. Seems like a good character guy. He's somebody who you want in the locker room and you want in your lineup. And I certainly expect him to continue to be a starting option for the Charlotte Hornets moving into this year. It was really interesting. Shout out to to Leo at Witch Carolina on Twitter. I mean, he pointed out multiple times last year when he was watching the Hornets that those small ball lineups when they went to PJ Washington playing the five were actually pretty effective. And that was something I'd said before last year's season even started. I wanted to see the Hornets experiment more and play Washington as a small ball five because I thought he had a lot of promise being um, not only just a role man, but also a pick and pop guy, being able to spread the floor, really give that offense maximum spacing to let LaMelo ball completely go to work, opening up all of his passing lanes, let him move the ball wherever he sees fit. And the only way to maximize open passing lanes is to completely stretch out the defense. And PJ Washington at the five allows you to do that. So again, I, I, I can, I expect that to definitely continue um, more opportunities for him at the five spot moving into this year for the Charlotte Hornets. Tyler hero. 13th overall pick to the Miami heat, a little bit of a forgotten man last year. He didn't, he didn't set the world on fire coming off of a finals appearance in the bubble with the Miami Heat. But I still thought he had a solid year. 15 points per game, 5 rebounds, 3.4 assists, almost 44% from the field, still 36% for 3 and 80% from the free throw line. You would want to see just, A, given how pretty his jump shot looks, and B, the number of opportunities that he's generally given to shoot the basketball from range. You would expect the 3-point attempts to be up from 5.5 and you would expect the percentage to be up close to that 38 39 percent mark that's something he can improve on i definitely think that at some point in his career he's going to be a 40 plus percent three-point shooter his his stroke is magnificent he gets the ball off quick he's really good at moving without the basketball and getting to his spots i expect those numbers to definitely continue to rise up as he gets even more of an expanded role as he continues to play for the Miami Heat, he can be like an 18 to 20 points per game scorer and have those three-point numbers shoot right up. That's how much respect I have for him in his offensive game. Really, I guess the biggest experiment that Miami undertook with, with Hero was, is he a two-guard? Is he a combo guard? Can we lean more into that combo guard side of him? Can we put the ball in his hands a little more? Can we make him run more pick and roll? Can he be more of a playmaker for our team than just a spot-up guy or, 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 or a catch-and-shoot guy? 
Can we give him more offensive responsibility? Can he handle it? And can it help us continue to win ballgames? And I think the answer to that question, it, it's been a mixed bag. In his rookie year, I don't think, especially not having having enough film on him, he wasn't the most prominent Kentucky guy in college from, from night to night. He had some moments, but he wasn't always the quote-unquote featured guy. Teams didn't have enough tape on him actually with the ball in his hands, operating as a point guard, running pick and roll sets the whole nine yards. And I think that's a reason why he was a little more effective in his rookie year handling that level of offense. Once once teams did get the film on him, they they recognized what he did with the basketball in those situations, where he wanted to go, the types of spots that he wanted to get to, what kind of shots he was looking for um, out of those pick and roll sets. Once the Once the opposing teams actually got the tape on him, he was not as effective in, in those areas. He doesn't necessarily have a standout pick and roll statistic that, that I could point to and say, okay, this guy deserves to have the ball in his hands at immense volume. Wasn't bad. 62nd percentile scoring out of those sets, 58th percentile when you throw in passes. So obviously those numbers take a dip when you factor in his ability to make plays out of those sets. Wasn't quite able to make the same reads given what defenses were likely throwing at him with some film under the belts. Can he improve in that area? Is that something that you want him doing? I don't, I don't know why Tyler Hero necessarily has to be a point guard for him to be effective in the NBA to, to justify more playing time. I think the player that he is, the catch-and-shoot guy, the spot-up guy, attacking closeouts, making the smart read within an offense, not being a, a volume assist guy, I think a more simplified offensive role he's perfectly capable of thriving in and excelling in. I would not try and throw more responsibility on this kid's plate just because you've seen him do some things in practice and the idea could be intriguing. Can he run some second units in a pinch? Yes, but he's not he, He's not going to be your starting point guard. I think that's another big reason why the team felt so compelled to go out and get Kyle Lowry. Kyle Lowry is your traditional point guard, your more traditional playmaker. That's his responsibility. That should not be that should not be Tyler's responsibility. I think that he'd understand that they're going to go into this year, maybe reverting back to a lot more of how they use Tyler Hero in his rookie year. So I expect him to have a better third year than a second year. Humo Kiki, 16th pick for the Orlando Magic, was technically a rookie last year, had to sit out what should have been his rookie year due to an injury he suffered. Uh, while he was playing at Auburn. Another one of these really intriguing combo forward type prospects, right? So he shot almost 42% from the field, almost 35% from three, 75% from the free throw line. Through shooting percentage, only 51.1%. That That's really low. And I, I don't don't usually like to give a bad marking to one of these younger players in terms of true shooting percentage, because there's a variety of different things that go into calculating that statistic. And when a lot of it's focused heavily on finishing around the basket, when these guys are young, they might not be fully grown into their bodies yet. They might struggle to finish through contact or try and drive through contact. They, they might be a little bit raw when it comes to shooting jump shots 
there's a variety of things that can hinder a true shooting percentage when a player is first coming into the NBA. So I don't like to hit too negatively on it, but that percentage is low for someone his size, especially given where he likes to operate with the basketball was in the 75th percentile scoring out of isolations. That's really interesting. This is what throws me for a loop because you'd figure his shoot, his true shooting percentage should be higher if he's in the 86th percentile on post-up opportunities. That means he's able to carve out space, establish post, post presence, get the ball in the low post, and he's able to find a way to face his man up and go to work. So you'd figure if he's turning and facing his man up, he's probably driving at the defense and is able to finish around the basket better. But in those areas where it did become more of a face-up opportunity, that just was that just was not the case. He was only the 21st percentile finishing around the basket. Those numbers, those numbers got to come up. He he's got to be a much more effective player finishing around the basket when he's operating without the basketball. He's got to be better than in the third percentile operating off cuts, 11th percentile operating off screens, and the fifth percentile scoring out of transition offense. He's got to be better in those areas. I'm not asking this guy to dominate in isolation, have the ball in his hands all the time, be a playmaker when he when he's afforded the ball, when he's given shot opportunities, because he 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 took plenty of shots last year. He took plenty of shots. He he had seven field goal attempts per game, but you have to also factor in that seven's not as many as like 14 or 15, but he was in a bench role for a decent portion of the year and only moved to the starting lineup later in the year for the Orlando Magic. So I would fully expect him as he gets more playing time this year, much more of an established role to definitely have like 13, 14, 15 shot attempts per game. And if he gets up to those numbers, He's got to be a much more effective finisher on the inside. I don't necessarily have a ton to say about his defensive game. He was all right. Not necessarily anything to write home about. 57th percentile in terms of total defense. 83rd percentile defending spot-ups. 90th percentile defending an isolation set. So he's a really nice one-on-one guy. You get him moving, have him operate, having, uh, having him defend off the basketball can get a little dicey. But I expect him to improve there. I expect a lot of his rebounding numbers to come up. He plays with energy, plays with passion, seems like a really good kid. I'm rooting for Chuma to, to definitely break out in, in what is technically his second year here. And I have him as a starting caliber prospect moving forward, just given his potential two-way impact. Again, as long as those shooting numbers are able to come up here. Now, this guy, this guy could certainly be an interesting debate. Matisse Steibel for the Philadelphia 76ers. Nate, why do you have him in a tier three, given how awful his offensive numbers are? Because he's one of the most effective defensive playmakers in the entire NBA. That's why. I mean, you've seen through the highlights some of the plays that he can make. I I love going back to his rookie year and one of Zach Lowe's 10 things I like and don't like columns where he, he had that recovery block on a three-point shot where he was completely out of the picture. And then all of a sudden he comes out of nowhere. He still manages to block that shot. You go, holy hell. If this guy can make plays like that, that is a really useful defensive player to have. And certainly in your lineup, could be a useful player to have in your starting lineup. I think he can be a starting caliber player, but two two main things need to happen. First, in, in regards to his defensive game, as I mentioned, he's a Swiss army knife. He can be really effective in different areas, um, guarding one through three, 
needs to continue to add a little more bulk, get stronger, as strong as he can on that end. He needs to, A, be able to handle fours when he gets switched on the fours or when he gets involved in, in, in switches or he gets put on a roll man. He needs to be able to handle those big defenders because size is something that he struggled with up to this point in his career. And it will also help him defend in, in different one-on-one situations. He's he's a playmaker. He's not your traditional lockdown defender. That's why in, in some situations in the playoffs, when somebody's light was lighting up the 76ers and you'd have some of the national pundits come on and say, well, you have Matisse Thibel, just put Thibel on him. It, it, it's all good. It's That's not the case. If, if that guy has a significant size advantage over Thibel, Thibel's not always going to, to win that matchup. He's much better defending in space defending without the basketball he keeps his head on a swivel he's a really good playmaker but he's not one of those individual one-on-one ball hawking stoppers right that's not his role but if he continues to work on his body put on some muscle put on some bulk that will help him in those situations and then obviously look the writing's on the wall he he cannot he cannot only shoot 30 percent from three and be as ineffective as he's been in different offensive percentiles on the court to justify those type of minutes in terms of being in a starting lineup, only a 50.8 true shooting percentage, 22nd percentile on spot-ups, 4th percent off handoffs, 18th percentile off cuts. Those easy opportunities, getting him downhill, moving without the basketball, he's got to be much more effective finishing around the basket on, in those areas. But at a 30th percentile um, on, on jump shots, didn't even register enough attempts to have a percentile in, in terms of like a runner or a floater game was only in the 42nd percentile finishing around the basket that that's considered average. It's not terrible, but I would expect that to be better. And, and 23rd percentile in catch and shoot looks Matisse Stiebel is open so much from the corner. If you go back and watch some 76ers games that he needs to be able to knock down those open corner shots when he's given them defenses cannot continue to sag off him collapse into the paint and muck up everything else the 76ers have wanted to do. We'll see if Ben Simmons is there is still there once this whole saga is over. But you cannot keep mucking up things in the paint. You got to be able to make the defense respect you. Knock down more of those shots. So those are the two things I, I really want Matisse to work on to justify me keeping him in this Tier 3. If not, then he would definitely be a Tier 4, potentially even a Tier 5 guy if things continue to remain that messy on the offensive end for him. Heldon Johnson, San Antonio Spurs wing. This is, this is where we start getting into that really interesting part in the draft that I talked about at the top of the podcast. Matisse Thibel was the 20th overall pick. Um, what was technically dealt in a trade. He was, that was originally the Boston Celtics pick. I moved to Philly in a trade. Heldon Johnson was the 29th pick in the draft. So getting a tier three player that late in the first round, that is quite the coup um, for the San Antonio Spurs, as well as a number of teams that, that we're going to talk about in this run here as we move through the rest of tier three. Kelvin Johnson, versatile forward, versatile offensive player, um, still needs to technically improve shooting the ball from three-point range. Only shot 33% last year, but he did finish um, 48% from the field. Overall was in the 61st percentile in terms of total offense. He's a power wing. He's a power scorer. He loves getting downhill, attacking, putting pressure on the defense. He's gotten much better at when he gets the defenders to collapse enough, he can go to that mid-range pull-up. He can knock down some of those shots. He can finish effectively around the basket. He's really good again, like I said, getting downhill off of those handoffs. He was in the 79th percentile scoring off of handoffs last year. 
not much of not much of a playmaker, not much of a gifted passer. Doesn't really have a unique finishing package around the basket. Doesn't really have too much of a floater game to speak of, and can certainly improve his efficiency shooting jump shots from all over the floor. But Keldon Johnson, averaging almost 13 points per game last year, really asserted himself in that San Antonio Spurs offense. It, it's funny if if Demar Derozan wasn't the best player on the floor for the Spurs last year, because Murray was hurt for for so much of the year that. The best player that night would end up going to Kelvin Johnson. Um, Lonnie Walker has not taken some of the steps that that I would have expected him to take up to this point in his career. Devin Vassell obviously is isn't ready yet to make major contributions to that team. So really, it, it was Kelvin Johnson's opportunity to seize at, at that wing spot, and he seized it. And he is definitely going to be a long term building block for for them. Not like a first or second option guy, but. He can still continue to improve. He's still incredibly young, can really mold into one of those unique third, fourth options. He can even play all the way up to the four because he's that bulky uh, of a wing. He was billed as a guard in college, but he was like this this 6'5", stocky built type guard. And his size, his strength have allowed him to play up positions in the NBA. And he's just a really unique weapon for San Antonio to have in the fold for the future. Kevin Porter Jr. Houston Rockets guard. If you've listened to any of the podcasts I've done over the last month, you know that I'm very high on Kevin Porter Jr. I expect big things from him in the future, as well as the tandem of him and Jalen Green for the Houston Rockets. Dynamic guard, seven, almost 17 points per game last year, six assists. What's not to like about Kevin Porter Jr.'s game? Well, he has to be more efficient shooting the basketball. Only shot 31% from three-point range. He can make virtually any shot in the book. Any, any shot you want him to take anywhere on the floor, he can make all of those looks. It's just about picking and choosing his spots better, taking better shots and making more of them. But he can make any shot that you want him to make. And also cutting down turnovers on the offensive end of the floor really limits his efficiency in other areas. He, he was three and a half turnovers per game last year. I get it especially at times where when, when he had that 50-point outburst, for example, the ball was constantly in his hands. He has a lot of responsibility. When you put the ball in someone's hands, asking them to take that many shots or make that many plays, you're, he's going to turn the ball over. That's just the, the nature of the beast operating in the NBA. But he can afford to cut down on some of those turnovers, take better shots, and try and be better defensively. When I go back to the film... That was the one thing I mentioned on Chad Ford's podcast. He disgusted me at times, not all the time, but at times when you go back and you watch his effort level on the defensive end. He's he's a really thin guard, but he's not he's thin, but he's not small. He has enough size to him to the point where he shouldn't be abysmal on the defensive end of the floor. He shouldn't be in in like Trey Young, Darius Garland land in terms of defensive efficiency and, and and how much he tanks his team's defensive impact. He should not be at that level. He should he should be able to keep himself around average. And if I'm Coach Silas, I'm definitely trying to speak to him on that end of the floor. If I'm Jalen Green, somebody who is going to come into the league as a rookie, he does take pride um, in his defensive efforts. I think 
those two having those two people around him will challenge him to be better on the defensive end. So shooting the ball more effectively, limiting turnovers, and putting more of an emphasis on his defensive game, I think are a massive recipe for success for Kevin Porter Jr. to have a breakout year amongst all players, not even just players in this draft class. And I fully expect that from him. Daniel Gafford, like Kevin Porter Jr. was, he was originally drafted by the Cleveland Cavaliers, ended up moving to the Houston Rockets. Daniel Gafford has also moved around a little bit. He's now with the Washington Wizards. His effectiveness, though, last year, and and I know Brett from the Overstated crew has posted in the group multiple times about how much he loves Gafford, how much he thinks he's a starting caliber center in the NBA, how effective he was when he was on the floor. I mean, he wasn't kidding. He shot 68% from the field when he was out there, 69.7 shooting percentage, 22.2 PER. If, if I were to tell you out of all of the guys that we're talking about in this podcast today, who would have the second highest PER? out of those guys. I don't think many people would have said Daniel Gafford behind Zion Williamson. But that was absolutely the case. He's He doesn't do a lot, but he's effective in what he does. 98th percentile in terms of total offense because he's a threat in transition. He's a vertical lob spacer. He is an athletic marvel at his size with his length. Again, He's not a jump shooter. He's not going to take jump shots. He's not going to make jump shots. He's exclusively an around-the-basket finisher. But when you factor in how mobile he is on the defensive end, how much ground he can cover, how he protects the whim, how he can how he can block shots from the weak side, when you factor in how good of a finisher he is around the basket, there's just so many ingredients to like about Gafford. I do love him as a long-term starter in the NBA. I think Washington has their center for the future. I know they they really like Thomas Bryant, but I would not be shocked if if Daniel Gafford ends up getting the lion's share of minutes at the center position this year, despite some of the other names that they have. Talon Horton Tucker, Los Angeles Lakers guard. Nate, why do you have him in a tier three? When he hasn't gotten a lot of opportunity yet to prove himself as that type of player, I think he is going to be a long-term starter in the NBA. Handles tempo really well. Scores effectively around the basket. Defends really well. He has one of those monster wingspans for a 6'4 guard. Can lock up guys in the opposing backcourt. He's really similar to another player that I'm going to get to a little bit later in this tier in the sense that he's a backcourt player, doesn't have that effective of a jump shot, but he can make the right decisions with the basketball. He can make good passes. He's a really effective defensive player, excellent rebounder for somebody his size when given the opportunity. He he has a role in a starting lineup as a glue guy, as a garbage opportunity type guy is going to, to, to clean up misses, bail out some other guys, even if he rebounds the ball on both ends of the floor, particularly on the offensive end. He can bail out a guy in a bad miss, get the rebound, put it back up. I really like Taylor Horton Tucker's effort, his tenacity, his toughness. He was a very unique prospect coming into the draft, and I think that's why he slid into the second round. He was one of the youngest 
uh, prospects in this draft class. But he also had such a unique game because the jump shot mechanics were wonky. Nobody knew if they were definitely going to translate to the NBA level. What does his finishing look like at the NBA level? How unique of a weapon is he truly on the defensive end? But he's answered the majority of those questions, even in limited opportunities for the Lakers up to this point. They did not want to let him go. They did sign him to a contract. I'm glad that the Lakers kept him because he's a he's definitely a young talent to keep around. And if I'm a team like the Lakers, I would definitely want to have somebody like Taylor Horn Tucker waiting in the wings, even if he doesn't get his opportunity quite yet this year. So Taylor Horn Tucker was the 46th pick in that draft. The 48th pick was Terrence Mann. Terrence Mann, holy shit. He came out last year in the playoffs and, and blew some doors off when, when people least expected it for the Clippers. I don't need to go through his counting numbers. There's not a lot that's necessarily going to impress you because he didn't have a big of a role throughout the entire length of the season. But he really came out offensively in a big way, proved that he can attack closeouts, drive to the basket, finish with either hand make jump shots from three-point range, catch-and-shoot looks, create his own jump shots, step-back threes. He he literally showed off like a whole, a whole arsenal of moves in the playoffs, and he absolutely blew me away. And then when you factor in, sure, he's not going to be the most effective defensive guard. Usually when, when you're that much of a competitor, when you're a bulldog on that end, it's similar to like a Patrick Beverly, for example. We consider those guys great defenders, but the numbers won't always say they were great because they take a lot of gambles when you play that close to somebody, when you play that up on them. If guys get by you, if they get one step on you, they're going to get by you. You're probably not going to recover unless you're a special, special athlete. So it's great to play with that effort. You can shut guys down on certain possessions. You can get in the face of somebody. You can bother them, even for the extent of a whole game. But you are going to take gambles. You're going to lose gambles if you play with that effort level, that that proximity to somebody on defense. Each and every possession, you'll lose some of those gambles. So that's why some of the defensive numbers might not always look good for, for a man. But I consider him in that good to great defensive category. Hey, listen, if the jump shot's for real... If the shooting and the efficiencies are for real, I'll, I mean, the raw percentages, I'll give you those. It, almost 51% from the field, 42% from three-point range, 83% from the free-throw line. If those numbers hold up, like, yeah, Terrence Mann's a starting caliber guard. He can be a starting caliber guard for the Clippers and operate alongside Kawhi Leonard and, and Paul George, and he can bring defensive effort, and he can hit open jump shots. Like, he's the type of player that doesn't need the ball in his hands all the time to be as effective as he can be on the court. And he just fits so well with a veteran-laden team like that that has its first, second, and sometimes even third options to find for them. I, I, I love the fit. Terrence Mann, definitely going to be a player for the Clippers for, for years to come. Now, the last guy I have in this Tier 3 would be Lou Dort. Oklahoma City Thunder guard, undrafted Luke Dort, has taken the NBA by storm. One of the most exciting defensive players we have in the NBA. That man, you want to talk about, I, I use the word house with Zion Williamson. You want to talk about house at the guard spot. Holy hell, Luke, Luke Dort. Luke Dort is a load, man. You do not want to go up against somebody. He, he's built like a linebacker. 
You do not want to go up against him every single trip down the floor. He will physically wear you out. Again, another one of those guys similar to man. As I pointed out, some of the defensive numbers aren't going to be as pretty because of how he plays defense, the proximity of which he's up against his man. Playing that close and, and, and putting that much attention, face guarding one guy, it can it can get you caught up when that man does get a step on you. If the offensive player effectively calls for a screen, you can get sandwiched in some of those screens. The good news is Luke Dort does fight through screens well. He can recover on that end. He's not aloof in terms of his athleticism. He does have a bit of a step to him, moves his feet well laterally. I love all of his defensive competitiveness. The main thing for me with Luke Dort, it's similar to the case you would make against Matisse Thibel for being in a Tier 3. His offensive game, it needs to improve. Now, the thing that Luke Dort has over Matisse, and will likely always have over Matisse, is that Dort can catch fire at any random moment in time. Like, you'll, you'll flip channels. You'll be watching the Oklahoma City Thunder. You'll flip a channel. You'll go back to the game. And he'll have, he'll have made like four or five threes before you before even realize like what the hell happened. Literally from the time that you went and, and, and checked out another program or you flipped on another game and you flip back to watching Luke Dort, all of a sudden he has a bunch of threes made because he can just catch fire at any random point. He can hit a game winner. He can get irrationally confident from the perimeter to the point where you can justify having him on the court offensively because of his defensive impact and the fact that he's not going to make a ton of shots all the time. He's going to be a very streaky shooter, but he can hold his percentage together at 34% over the course of an entire year. At the very least, having that kind of shooter on the floor, that justifies keeping him on the court for his defensive impact. But yes, yeah, some of the percentages, I mean, we don't have to go into all of them, but some of the percentages finishing around the basket, um, his effectiveness on, uh, on other parts of the floor, those numbers have to go up. I think they will go up. There's no reason why he shouldn't finish better around the basket, given his physical build, the effort that he plays with. But Luke Dortman, talk about an undrafted guy who probably shouldn't have been undrafted. If we're going to be perfectly honest with ourselves, I definitely had him as a draftable guy in 2019. My opinion should have been drafted, but he did not get snatched up by a team. But it did not take him long to find a home. And he found one in Oklahoma City. Those Thunder fans absolutely love Dort. They consider him one of their own. When you, when you talk about guys on the Oklahoma City Thunder who they view as keepers, it's like Shea and like Luke Dort's in there. Some people have Darius Baisley, who we'll get to in a little bit. Those are the names that come up for the Thunder besides some of the guys that they obviously picked in the last two drafts, like Poku, Josh Giddy. Etc. Luke Dort has a home in Oklahoma City. He's valued by that team and that organization. Great story. Love the opportunity he got. I love watching Luke Dort. I'm rooting for him. So that wraps up Tier 3. We get into Tier 4. I have eight guys in Tier 4 that I'm going to try and run through quickly here. And then I'll finish out the podcast, maybe mentioning some guys from from some of the lower tiers, some of the other names to remind you um, uh, of the draft that they were in. Kobe White, seventh overall pick to the Chicago Bulls. I have him in a tier four. He's caught fire 
he's had games offensively where you look at him and you go, this guy gets as hot as anybody. He can make shots from all over the floor. He's one of the most deadly pull-up jump shooters we have in the league when his shot is on. Why is he not a tier higher? Well, he's not a consistent offensive player. He's not a consistent scorer of the basketball. Shooting numbers are not bad. He's 36% from three, 90% from the free throw line. Those are really good numbers. But his effectiveness from everywhere else in the court, coupled with the fact that he's best at the point guard spot if he's going to start and he's not a natural playmaker, not a natural table setter for that team, struggles reading out of pick and roll other than the very basic um, pocket pass first read, doesn't keep his head up, doesn't keep his eyes on, on other teammates well, not a very good passer of the basketball. His 4.8 assists are a little bit misleading. A lot of those are, are very, 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 very simple passes that he makes. He doesn't have any sort of advanced craft to his passing game. Defensively, given the, he has good size to him, but that was one of the concerns given his lack of um, a really good wingspan for his size when he was coming into the NBA. People struggled with how good of a defender he's actually going to be. He hasn't been a good defender in the NBA. I just think given what he excels at, given his best role within an offense, I think he's much best, much better suited as a sixth man coming off the bench. You're able to plug him in as a two guard, let him focus on scoring and, and, and shooting the basketball primarily. Don't throw too much other res offensive responsibilities on him. Put him on the bench. And this is a big reason why the Bulls went out and got Lonzo Ball. They trust Lonzo Ball to actually run that offense and be a playmaker for others be a table setter for guys like Zach Levine and, and even DeMar DeRozan. DeMar DeRozan's going to have the ball in his hands a lot, making plays for others too. Set the table for Zach Levine, Nick Vucevic, Pat Williams, Alex Caruso, some of the other guys they have on that team. Like Set the table for those guys. Ease some of the offensive responsibility off Kobe White. Have him operate as more of like a six-man. That's the long-term role I see him in. That's why I have him as a tier four, six-man slash borderline shooting specialist. Jackson Hayes. Jackson Hayes is really interesting. Eighth pick in the draft. The New Orleans Pelicans. Has not gotten a lot of opportunity yet up to this point in his career. Whether that's the Pelicans haven't thought that he's ready to fully step into that starting lineup remains to be seen. Doesn't have a ton of shot attempts or, or or situational attempts to prop up a lot of these synergy statistics but some of these numbers are really interesting first of all 19.1 per 67 and a half true shooting percentage is great 97 percentile in terms of total offense now like i said some, some of this is skewed because he didn't register as many offensive possessions as some of the other people that can have a higher percentile, like like 97 percentile in terms of total offense for Jackson Hayes is not the same as 92nd for Zion Williamson, for example. We'll just we'll we'll put it that way. But 89th percentile in spot ups, 96th percentile scoring out of transition sets. Those are things we know he can do. 93rd percentile on jump shots. Did you know he could hit a jump shot? You go back and watch some of the film. He act, yeah he doesn't have a bad jump shot. He just hasn't gotten an opportunity to take a lot of them in spades, but 47.4% on jump shots, 81st percentile finishing around the basket. 
And then you can break into some of his defensive statistics. Obviously, we know about his rim protection, his elite athleticism and his size being the mobile center that he is, a really unique weapon. He has a chance to, to be a Tier 3 player. Some people might even want to argue with me that he could very well be a Tier 3 player right now, somebody who is ready to be a starter, but he's not going to start this year. Jonas Valanciunas is going to be that starting center for the Pelicans. I wonder how much opportunity Jackson Hayes is going to get with a second unit this time around. Will he average more minutes per game than he did last year? I don't know the answer to that question, but it's just really interesting when you go back and you watch some of the film and you see some of the things that he showcased he can do in, in limited opportunities. And, and you say to yourself, we expand his role. If we give him like 10 more minutes per game, give him some more shot attempts per game, let him try out a few more jump shots other than your, your standard role man, vertical lob space or transition opportunities. If we just, if we throw a few more things at him. What does it look like? I wonder what that looks like too. So I'm going to keep him as a tier four guy for now. I think his most likely outcome is as like a top big man off the bench or if he is a starter and he's only asked to do those more limited things offensively, he's probably like the, the fifth best guy in that lineup, not like the first to the fourth best guy in the lineup. But there, there is a world in which Jackson Hayes is a tier three guy. That world does exist. I'll be curious to see if more of those opportunities manifest themselves this upcoming year. Now, Cam Reddish. I would love to put Cam Reddish in tier three. I would absolutely love to do it. I've said to multiple people at different points, Cam Reddish has all of the talent to do virtually whatever he wants on the basketball court. For whatever reason, it has not worked out for him in college. Well, no, not not had. It didn't work out for him in college. That's why he slid all the way to the 10th pick in the draft. It's just can't slide too far. At some point, you just have to bet on the upside. But it hasn't worked out for him in the NBA either. Now, he had that really interesting playoff game last year for the Hawks. Had some moments in the playoffs when he came back from injury, got got some minutes. But his overall effectiveness from the court, I mean, 36.5% from the field, 26% from three, has never finished well around the basket, 20th percentile in terms of total offense, 48.8 true shooting percentage. That's an abysmal mark for a wing. He's just not an efficient offensive player. He hasn't proven that that he can handle any sort of offensive responsibility in large bulk. And I don't know what that means for his future with the Hawks. Some point he's going to be due a payday, some point very soon. Are the Hawks actually going to pay him? Is he going to be fill-in or, or trade fodder for a bigger package that might be out there? I know many have speculated at this point if Bradley Beal, somebody like that, becomes available. The Hawks have a really good package to, to, to put around multiple young players, multiple picks to go out and get another star like that. Cam Reddish is probably one of those throw-in players. But I don't want to completely bury him. I don't want to put him in a tier lower than tier four because there is just so much talent there. Or does he continue down this path and he ends up like what Ben McLemore has ultimately turned into? That was, that was a really popular comp. Thrown around, thrown around for him in some private scouting circles when he was coming into the draft. And people really started to buy into the low end because of the inconsistencies they saw at Duke. 
They didn't hear good things about him off the court. He even himself admitted that he wasn't in the best of shape. That brings your work work ethic into question. How much do you actually love the game despite the amount of talent you have? Again, I these are just things that I'm throwing out there for when he was coming into the draft. I don't know the answers to those questions. I do not know Cam Reddish. I'm not going to slander Cam Reddish on this podcast by any means if I don't know the answers to those questions, but I'm just throwing those points out there what gave some people cause to pause and why he slipped to 10. There is a likely world that he could be traded to another team, doesn't work out there, and is out of the league. That's a realistic possibility at this point. I hope that this year we get the Cam Reddish that we saw last year in, in, the, in those few stints in the playoffs. I hope that's the player we get because if we get that player – that's a player that deserves being in a rotation. That's a player when you couple his defensive impact, his length, his athleticism, that's a player that can justify being in a tier three, being like a guaranteed starter on a good team. That's a guy who could start alongside um, DeAndre Hunter and Bogdanovich in that starting lineup with Trey Young and John Collins. That's the type of player we're talking about, the type of player who's in there. It's just, will he manifest himself? Another guy who, if you're on his highland, high, high outcome island, that would be Brett. I'm talking to you, Brett, over at the Overstated NBA show. Then you really have a lot of belief that Darius Baisley is going to take a massive jump this year. He's going to be more than he's shown. Didn't have a bad year last year, almost 14 points per game, seven rebounds per game. As Brett pointed out, on the joint show that we just did a week ago. He had a lot on his plate for the Thunder because when 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 Shea wasn't in the lineup or some other players around him were being ineffective, like they would all of a sudden just funnel all responsibilities through Baisley. And he's still an incredibly young player, so giving him too much volume, I mean his percentages are not going to look good if that's the case. And they 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 don't look good. Under 40% from the field, under 30% from three-point range, 70% from the line, 9.7 PER, 49.1 true shooting percentage, 17th percentile in terms of total offense. I read off a lot of percentiles when I did this podcast with, with Brett, Jacob, and Steve uh, a week ago, so I won't read off all the, the negative percentiles. I don't want to bash Baisley too hard, but what I will say is that he's an intriguing talent, especially on the defensive end. If the jump shot works for him, if some of the playmaking is real, some of the inverted pick and roll stuff that he can do is real. He's an interesting guy to have at the four spot in your lineup. But if he's not efficient, if he starts developing some black hole tendencies, then I just, I just don't know how high end of a player he can become. Like, I think he's a tier four guy right now. I think he's on a good team. He's probably like the fifth best guy in the lineup. As a high-end outcome for him, maybe he bumps into the low end of that tier three, but this is... Brett and I don't usually disagree on players. As a matter of fact, the guy the guy after Baisley is, is an agreement between him and I. We usually don't disagree in terms of when we evaluate talent. Baisley's one guy where we disagree. I do not... I just don't see the star level ceiling for Baisley that that some people I won't just say Brett's name. There are there are 
there is a contingent of people who think that Baisley has a lot more in the tank to be tapped into, but I, I don't see it. I hope I'm proven wrong because, again, he is an intriguing talent. I just don't know where he fits long-term with Oklahoma City because of the type of talent that they've drafted lately with Poku and Giddy. Like These are all similar-sized players who are going to be expected to play a similar role. I don't know where Baisley fits with that team long-term. If he's moved, I don't know how he fits with another team long-term. So there's some uncertainty, not just with his game and his efficiency shooting and scoring from the field, but I just don't know what his role is going to look like long-term either. So I'm going to keep him at tier four. Now, Jordan Poole, I'm a Jordan Poole guy. I've always been a Jordan Poole guy. In his freshman season at Michigan, when a lot of people weren't talking about him being like a draftable guy, I did have him draftable. I would have been comfortable taking him in the second round. I think he's due for a breakout year. I'm not the only person projecting him to have a breakout year, but even last year, 12 points per game, 43% from the field, 35% from three, 88% from the line, and above league average PER, 58.1% true shooting, 87th percentile on spot ups, 92nd percentile in cuts, 88th percentile in transition. He just has one of those tailor-made games at the off-guard spot where you can plug him in, you can have him come in with a second unit, you can plug him in with some starters. He's not going to get in anyone's way, but he's going to make his impact felt. He's going to stretch the defense. On occasion, he's going to make an exciting play off the bounce. He's not going to completely sink your lineup defensively. I mean, when when we look around and, and we look at guys who can close out a game for Golden State, right? You would think that if Clay's healthy, he's going to be one of those guys to go with the obvious pairing of Steph and Draymond. Those other two spots are up for grabs. And when you talk about their closing lineup, you're talking about their, their, their death lineup, right? Their small ball, Draymond's at the five with a bunch of shooters around him and Steph. Who are the other two spots? Is it Wiggins? Is James Wiseman somehow on the floor? Is Iguodala definitely going to be that guy, especially late in the year going into the playoffs? Does he have enough left in the tank? Could Jordan Poole sneak into a role like that? Maybe you have Steph, Jordan Poole, Clay, maybe Iguodala right there, Draymond. I think the most likely closing lineup at this moment in time, if I had to guess, is probably Steph, Clay, Wiggins, Iguodala, and Draymond. But I'll tell you what, if Jordan Poole shoots shoots lights out and he's as effective moving without the ball and scoring off the ball, he picks, he 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 continues to improve picking up on their motion style offense. If he meshes with all of those key guys that you're looking at to be in that closing lineup, it would not shock me in the slightest if they give Jordan Poole a much more expanded role this year and they go to him to close out some games. And and I, I, I think he's deserving of it. I think he's earned at least the opportunity to try because I think he's that potentially special of an outside shooter. Really, really intriguing guard. I cannot wait to see what happens for him in Golden State this year. Nick Claxton, Brooklyn Nets big man. Same story as with some of these other big men that we've had on the list. He's not going to do anything that special offensively, although he can handle the ball a little bit, make make some plays for, for others off the move. 
that's really interesting. But in terms of his scoring repertoire, he's not a jump shooter right now. He's mainly going to finish easy looks in transition. He's going to get offensive rebounds. He's going to finish around the basket. Sometimes be a lob guy. That That's what you're looking for from Nick Claxton. But really with him, and, and this is a big reason why some people looked at what the Brooklyn Nets did this offseason when they were able to bring LaMarcus Aldridge back and they they still have Blake Griffin in the fold and they have Paul Millsap. And you look at that front court and it's like there aren't any defensive specialists in that front court. Now you DeAndre Jordan has now gone to the Lakers. Where are the Nets going to get rim protection and, and defensive from in the front court? I think they stacked up on offensive-minded big men, guys who they can bring in for... I don't know, six to eight minutes a, a a pinch and provide them with some scoring punch off the bench. I think they, they stack so many of those like-minded talents because they have they have a defensive weapon sitting right in front of them in Nick Claxton. And he was that guy last year. He was the guy who, if you polled everybody on Twitter and you asked them who should be playing the most minutes for the Nets at the big man spot, especially in the playoffs. A lot of people, the vast majority, said Claxton because of his defensive expertise. I want to read you off where he ranks in these defensive numbers. 90th percentile in terms of total defense last year. 76th percentile defending um, ball handlers and pick and roll sets. 86th percentile defending spot-ups. 95th percentile defending post-ups. 86th percentile defending jumpers. 95th percentile defending around the basket. 88th percentile contesting all jumpers off the dribble. Short, medium, long. Doesn't matter where the hole is in Nick Claxton's defensive game. Now, it's a similar story to what I've talked about with some of these other percentiles, that Nick Claxton wasn't your your full-time logging 28 to 30 minutes a night starter, so him ranking a little bit higher in some of these percentiles with with some of these other guys who are on limited opportunities, the, the numbers are skewed a little bit, but the results speak for themselves. The film speaks for itself. Nick Claxton is one of the more unique defensive-minded big men that I think we have in the NBA. He's proven that he likes to play defense. He's competitive on that end of the floor, and he's the unique weapon that the Nets can throw out there if they really get in a bind defensively, if they need to go to somebody else to provide stops at the basket. They need somebody to be able to switch in screens, not get lost in in, in switching pick-and-roll coverages. If they need a big man to you know, do something a little more than just play back and drop coverage. They can go to Claxton. He can be that guy for them. And that's why, that's why he, he certainly justified himself, whether he's ends up being a tier three guy at some point in his career. I don't know. I don't know if he does anything that well offensively, he's not as prolific of an offensive finisher around the basket as somebody like Gafford, who he did as of a, who I did have as a tier three player, for example. But Man, his defensive talents, he is unique. And he's one of those guys, he was picked 31, probably should have been a first-round pick. A lot of GMs are ticking themselves because all the rage out there is to have this versatile big man who doesn't get lost in these different types of coverages, can keep up with some of these perimeter guys, isn't aloof defending in space, can protect the rim. You want these these bigs who can defend at multiple levels on the court not just purely around the basket. And Claxton is one of those guys. And the Nets, along with all of the the stupid good offensive talent they have, the rich just get richer. They still have Claxton. And then the last two guys in this tier four, I'll touch on very quickly because they haven't gotten 
proper opportunities yet, in my opinion, to showcase their talents. But Jalen Newell for the Minnesota Timberwolves and Bull Bull for the Denver Nuggets. They belong in this tier four. Bull Bull could definitely be a tier three guy. It's just a matter of opportunity. It's a matter of can he stay healthy? Does preparation meet opportunity for Bull Bull? That's the main question for him. But we even saw in the bubble when they unleashed him how unique of a talent he is at his size, his perimeter-oriented skill set for an above seven-footer. He can handle the basket, do some things off the dribble. Excellent, excellent rim protector. Health is just the biggest key for him. I will be curious to see if this year he does get a little more opportunity with the Denver Nuggets. And then Jalen Noel, one of the best microwave scorers off the bench. Definitely what I would consider to be a scoring specialist, not a shooting specialist, but a scoring specialist. If he can buffer out some of those shooting percentages, it'll be interesting to see if he breaks into much more of a consistent role for the Timberwolves. Look great this the, the, this past summer league. Look look great for the Timberwolves asserting himself as an offensive presence. Him 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 and Jaden McDaniels really did an excellent job on that Timberwolves summer league team. But that's going to do it for these tier one through four players. Some notable names that did not make tiers um, one through four. Brandon Clark, he can definitely be a tier four type guy for the Memphis Grizzlies. Fell off a little bit last year. I'm not excited about what his role is going to look like even this year, given how well Xavier Tillman played for them last year. I just struggle to see exactly where he fits. Eric Pascal for the Utah Jazz now, formerly Golden State Warrior was in that rookie of the year race when he was with the Warriors was a frequent mention in the rookie ladder that NBA.com does in his rookie year fell off a little bit in terms of role and value with the Warriors. Wasn't the type of shooting defensive combo that they thought they were ultimately getting with Pascal. He has a chance to, to rebuffer his image a little bit with the Utah jazz for sure. Jared Culver, now ends up with the Memphis Grizzlies. I wonder if if he can reclaim some of his status with the Grizzlies. Again, another, another not incredibly young prospect, but young enough. If Memphis gives him opportunities, I wonder if he's able to convert on some of those opportunities. And then you have some names that, well, at least, at least one name I'll give you as a guy who I didn't even necessarily want to put in a quote-unquote tier, but I have him as a tier seven guy. Somebody who has talent to be in a much higher tier than seven, but just has not been able to put it together due to what is seemingly character and off-the-court issues, lack of a work ethic, lack of understanding of the game at a deeper level. Sakudun Boya, formerly of the Detroit Pistons, just seems like his time in the NBA could be rapidly coming to an end. Um, and, and it's, it, it's sad to see that from, from any guy who was picked higher up in the draft, but that's just the way the cookie crumbles sometimes folks. That's just the way that it breaks down. Not all these guys are going to pan out. Not every player is going to be a star. Not every player is going to be a starter. Even somebody like a Nikhil Alexander Walker, who has it a tier five guy, maybe like a year ago, I would have might maybe had him as like a tier three, tier four type guy has just not proven that he can put everything together for consistent stretches to earn a starting role. And I'll be curious to see what kind of playing time he gets this year for the New Orleans Pelicans. If he is a starter in that lineup, can he bump Devontae Graham? 
out. He has talent, but can he actually put it all together? Is he much better coming off the bench as like your seventh to ninth man? Only time will tell. These tiers are not finalized, as I said with the last podcast with 2020, 2019. We're only two years out. We're still technically projecting. I'm still projecting when I'm putting these tiers together, but this was kind of how I see things with this draft class as of now. I thank you so much for listening to this podcast, listening to me ramble on for for what seems to be forever, but I love covering some of these guys that have been in the NBA now. It's interesting to see where they came from and where they're at now. We got 2018, 2017 in the pipeline. We have NBA season preview content coming in the pipeline. We'll do some um, 30 questions for 30 teams. That series is coming back with the overstated NBA show. I'll make sure to do some awards predictions podcast, particularly with the rookies. We'll get the all rookie team predictions out there and rookie of the year ballot predictions out there and then we'll move into 2022 so stay tuned to this podcast feed subscribe wherever you get your podcast apple spotify youtube follow us on twitter at draft deeper for all of the updates that are coming out i promise a big one a big one is coming around the corner with where you're going to find my written content this upcoming draft cycle slash nba year along with some other very talented people in the industry definitely stay tuned to my twitter feed for that announcement And thank you all again for listening. We'll be back next week with the last two of these tier breakdowns. I hope you all have a wonderful rest of this week. 